uh, Joey Sedlock. For those who may not know, um, I'm a member here at Sulphur Community Church, and today I have the privilege of uh, bringing our sermon to us. We'll be in the book of Ruth, so you can go ahead and turn there. Um, it's a, a very small book in between Samuel and Judges. Very easy to miss, just a couple chapters long. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about Ruth for, for a number of reasons that we get to discuss over the next seven or eight weeks. But uh, if you're new to Sulphur Community, this is what we do. We grab a book of the Bible, and we, we just simply move through it verse by verse, line by line, and we see what the Lord has in store for us. So today uh, we'll be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 14, and that reads, <clears throat> In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the names of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her husband and without her sons. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return to the country of, uh, from the country of Moab, for she heard that the field, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. When she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you uh, to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I am too old to have a husband. If I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today, Lord, and we are thankful, uh, Lord, for your message. Lord, we are thankful for your church. We are thankful for your word. And Lord, in particular, I'm thankful for Ruth, her example, her story, Lord, that we get to dig into. And I pray that our hearts are open that as, as, as Ruth ministers to us and challenges us, we are responsive. That we see your glory, your ways as, as higher than our own. We see you as, as bigger than our suffering, bigger than our grief. And Lord, I pray that you are with us today and that you move today in a very special way. 
We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in the name of your holy and precious Son. Amen. So I'd mentioned uh, that Ruth was one of my favorite books of the Bible, and that's for a lot of reasons, but one of the main ones is it's kind of been a, a type of figure book for me in that uh, I've read it a lot. That's not me being holy. The book's just really short. Uh, but I, I've read it a lot, and every time I read it, 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 it changes for me. It's different for me. It's deeper for me. And, and that's how all of Scripture is, but I've seen it specifically in the book of Ruth. And so we will never, we will never exhaust any of it, and we won't exhaust the book of Ruth either. But it, 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 gets me, it gets me excited to talk about it and to kick off our study of it. But there's a few things that I want to talk about the book of Ruth isn't before we talk about what the book of Ruth is. So the book of Ruth, uh, as you've seen, um, it's, it's just a few chapters long. You can read it in, in 15 minutes or less. And if I can read it in 15 minutes, you can probably read it in less. I just read a little bit slower uh, than most. And if you read the book in just 15 minutes, you will come out with this neat little story about a girl who goes and, and find love. And if you just put like My Christmas Prince as the title, it'll be straight to Hallmark around Christmas time. They got, they got a girl. She moves back to her mother-in-law's hometown. Uh, we got a small business owner. Typically in the Hallmark movies, they, they have a small child or a dog. Right, But they always own a small business, and they always drive a single-cab pickup. It's 100% of the time. Small business owner notices new girl in town. There's some flirting. There's some anticipation, and finally they get together. And if you just read the book of Ruth in 15 minutes, that's about what you'll come up with. But that's not the story that's there. The story that's there is it's a better story than that. Also, if you read the book of Ruth, and, and the way that I've heard the book of Ruth taught, unfortunately, was, was a challenge to single guys and single gals to, to, to stay pure and hold out for their Boaz or for their Ruth. And so it's this, it's this challenge. There's someone better out there for you. Hold on to that person. And, and Boaz, he's a great guy. We're going to meet him and, and, and in a few weeks and and get to know him a little better. And Ruth, she's, she's a great gal. She's courageous and strong. And, and both of them are really characters that we could seek to emulate. But the story that's there is still a better story than just hold out for the one, right? And so first and foremost, what the book of Ruth is, is the book of Ruth is a story about God providing for and redeeming his people through the everyday working of life. First and foremost, primarily, the book of Ruth is a story about God providing for and redeeming his people through the everyday, ordinary working of life. I've said that twice, so you know it's important, right? Pay attention. That I think is also going to be one of our biggest challenges for the book of Ruth. 
And that is because God is going to do a lot of incredible things, the same things that he does through the book of Exodus, right? Just not through like magic fights and and splitting a sea and and drowning an entire army and pillars of cloud and fire. And and he's going to do the same things that he did throughout the book of Acts, which we just spent a year studying, right? But but not through uh, calling dead people back to life and, and not through miracles and not through thousands of people coming to Christ at one time. He's going to do it through Ruth, being obedient and working the fields at harvest time. The issue is we don't have a lot of perseverance for that. We don't have, we, 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 we want to be entertained. Look at, look at other churches that are th- where thousands and thousands of people are showing up and, and the spectacles have to get bigger and better and the preacher has to make more outlandish claims and they have to compromise more and more of Scripture and it's because they have to keep people's attention constantly. The book of Ruth is going to challenge us to slow down. Look at the thousand things God does in your life every single day of which you hardly notice any. In the fields of Bethlehem, we're going to see that the Lord is providing for his people, loving his people, and redeeming his people. Another thing that Ruth is, and and I don't want to bypass this in any way, shape, or form, Ruth is a love story. It absolutely is a love story. It's just not a hallmark love story. It's a gospel love story. It's a story that points us to King Jesus. And we'll talk about how it does that. But specifically, and this is, this is a word that, that I kind of want you to get sick of a little bit, it is what they call a hesed love story. Hesed is a Hebrew word that's translated all throughout the Old Testament as the love that Yahweh, that God has for his people. It's a love that is sacrificial. It is a love that is translated uh, loving kindness and, and steadfast love. It's a love at, uh, of which there is no exit. It's a covenant love. And in, in, uh, in one of the kind of most famous uses of it is, is Psalm 63, uh, verse 3, where David is speaking. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The word there is hesed. That's good for us to know. Because you know where the vast majority of our lives take place? in the ordinary, day in, day out. We clock in, we work our nine to five, we go home. We meet with our small groups. We come to church, we sing two songs, sermon, two songs. We'll talk about changing it one day, but that's what we do now. But that doesn't mean God's not at work. It doesn't mean that God isn't doing miraculous things. And we need to know this specifically because sometimes those days aren't good days. Sometimes those days are filled with grief, suffering, sadness, hopelessness, in some cases death, emptiness. And that's actually where our story starts in Ruth. It starts in emptiness. It starts in hopelessness. It starts in a story that within a few verses gets riddled with death. So look with me in verse 1. 
It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man is Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. So this is, this is our author. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth, but this is our author giving us some setting and kind of some, some broad strokes, right? But if, if we just move past that quickly, because it's just a couple of verses, if we just move past that quickly, we, we really miss the main setting of the story, the tone of the story that will then come back later and we'll miss the main point of the ending. And so he says in the first few lines, he's already letting us know this is a tragic and chaotic time. For he says, in the days when the judges ruled. This book is in between Judges and Samuel. It's in between this transition from when the judges rules to when Israel will get their first king. And in these days, it is broadly described by one phrase, the last line of the book of Judges. Uh, chapter 21, verse 25, it just says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. This is actually a refrain through the book of Judges where it, it says this multiple times. There's no king. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes. This is, this is a time of war. This is a time of chaos. And this is a time, for whatever reason, uh, the Holy Spirit gives us the story of this Moabite girl. So let's pay attention. Let's, let's, let's see what we have here. It said that there was a famine in the land, and a man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in Moab. And so, okay, that, that makes sense, right? Things aren't going well uh, for, for Israel in general. There's a famine, which isn't necessarily so uncommon, but it forces this one family out to Moab. It forces them to a foreign country. They are now foreigners, no food. Their homeland is not in good repair. And it just says, a man and his son, uh, his wife and his two sons. And then we get to know the name of the man. It's Elimelech. It's Naomi. It's his two sons, right? And then specifically, it gives, it gives, it already gave us a very detailed, uh, description of where he's from. He's from Bethlehem in Judah. And then it goes on to say in verse 2 that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So in these few verses, there's broad detail except for these two details. We're talking about Bethlehem in Judah, and we're talking about Ephrathites who are in Bethlehem who are in Judah. To the reader thousands of years ago who are reading Ruth, that lets them know one thing. This story is about King David. It lets them know that because he is the most famous Ephrathite from Bethlehem, from Judah. So what we have is we have this broad stroke story that starts up. And, and to get attention, uh, those who would, who would tell the story of Ruth would say, hey, I got a story about a family in Bethlehem a long time ago. And somehow they're connected to David. And people would say, okay. Well, I'm going to listen then, because King David, he's, he's a big deal. And I want to listen to see where his story comes from. So it catches our attention. 
And notice how we talk about... Um, Notice how we talk about the people. They, it gets a little bit more detailed, right? It's, it's, it's some people, then there's a wife, there's kids, and then we get their names. And in verse 3, we start a descent. We're already driven out of our lands. But, but in verse 3, we, we hear, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there for about 10 years. But Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. They're already foreigners in a different land. There's already a famine that has driven them away. They get there. Her husband dies. There's a, there's a brief kind of repose. We're like, but our sons take wives, but then our sons die. This is, this is how the story of Naomi starts. This is how we're introduced to Naomi through grief, through death, and through hopelessness. In this society, a woman is nothing unless she is connected to a man, either through her husband or through her sons who can, who can continue to provide for the lineage of the family. She's left without any of them. She has no husband. She's a widow, which we just talked about in our precious in our sight, right? She's a foreigner, which we just talked about that as well. And she's the mother of two dead sons. Everything has been stripped from her that would give her any value in society. And we can see that in the text as well, because at first she was Naomi, and then Elimelech, got identified as being the husband of Naomi, which was reversed. Usually the wife is, is identified by who uh, her husband is, but her husband is identified by who his wife is. But by the time we get to verse 5, we see that she has been degraded to the woman. What is her name? It doesn't matter anymore. Later on in the book, we'll see she changes her name to Mara, which just means bitter. That's probably an awkward Thanksgiving. We've got to... Gmaw didn't change her name to Bitter. That's, that's, that's rough. There's a conversation there, right? But she is just the woman. There's, there's a lot of grief that needs to happen here now, right? There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of heaviness that needs to be dealt with and, and nobody is going to blame Naomi for her reaction to this. And we begin to see her reaction in verse 6, where it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is our first streak of hope so far in this, in this story. All we have is a displaced family that has been riddled with loss and emptiness and no real reason for hope. And then Yahweh happens. The name of the, the Lord's personal name is here. And it says, for Yahweh has visited his people and has given them food. 
That's our, that's our first beam of hope in an otherwise dark situation, right? There's, there's nothing but death and hopelessness, but Yahweh is still providing for his people. Naomi hears about this and decides, my only hope is to go back to where I came from, where at least there's food. So she sets out with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way. So they, they decided, we're going to go back to Bethlehem, and on that trip there, we really see how this has affected Naomi much more than, than what we're able to see so far. And, and, and so Naomi has this conversation with, with her daughters-in-law, starting in verse 8, and it says, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as, you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And so Naomi understands what's going on, right? She can't bring two additional females back to Bethlehem and expect to be able to care for her. She doesn't know if she is going to be able to care for herself. She is not connected to anyone who can actually provide stability, who can provide money, who can provide safety. And she says, I can't bring y'all along with me. You would do much better to abandon me, to leave me alone, go back to Moab, where you can marry other Moabite husbands, because that's your culture, that's where you're from, that's where your structure is, and leave me alone. Every other strike against Naomi has been delivered by something else, but she seeks to deliver this one to herself. And we can, we can see that this is, this is not an easy thing for them to do. I don't know what kind of character Naomi has, has displayed to them during the time that, she was, that they were married to her sons, but they don't want to leave her. This is, this is an irrational dedication. They should say, you know what, you're right, I need to go because I need to provide a life for myself and you can't provide that for me. And so it says that uh, she even, she even like offers blessings from the Lord. Like, hey, uh, I'll give you my blessing. I will pray for you. I will hope that things work out well for you, but you have to depart from me. And they lift up their voices and they wept. They don't want to do this. And so they continue on, uh, as we continue on in, in verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. And this is where we see Naomi make, make great arguments but we can, hear, we can hear the bitterness and the anger come out in them. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. And she's going to give us, she's going to give us three separate arguments for why they would turn back. She said, turn back. Why would you go with me? This is confusing, right? This is irrational. Why would you go with me? Do I have sons in my womb that may become your husbands? That's her first argument. I can't provide anything for you. Everything comes through being connected to some kind of male, and I can't provide that connection for you. And 
And so she says, turn back, my daughters, go your own way, for I am too old to have a husband. And she starts to offer kind of absurd arguments to prove her point, where she says, if I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear a son, would you therefore wait for them to be grown? Would you refrain from marrying? These are good arguments, right? These are, these are real. This is Naomi being real with them. I can't provide anything for you. I'm not pregnant, but let's just say, miraculously, I end up with a husband and I give birth. Today, you're still in the same situations. What are you going to do? Wait? No, of course not. Not in this society. Not here. And so finally, her, her third argument is, is she turns her attention to the way that Yahweh has dealt with her, the way that God has dealt with her. And this is where we see, like, this is, this is a big deal for her. This is, this, is, uh, this is bitter. This is angry, where she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And she says, don't you get it? Don't you get it? The Lord himself is against me. What can you do? The one who, can, the one who could work the miraculous, the one who is the provider, the one who, who I'm going back and, and, I'm, and I'm basically just hoping to cling to, he is against me. It would be very bitter for you, for, for me to drag you into my situation. Leave me alone for your betterment. And before we get to their reactions, is that a place where some of us are? Are we in that time of grief? I know some of us are. I know for a fact some of us are. It seems, to be honest, that even, even though this is written about a specific situation thousands of years ago, I hear the same argumentation almost on a weekly basis about those of us who day in, day out, their lives are just in grief right now. Those who are, are hurting and they don't see the Lord as, as, as a hesed loving kindness, steadfast, loving Lord. They see the Lord as someone who has gone out against me. As we seek to do life with one another in our, in our small groups and, and in our families, we come against this, right? We come against this where we say, why, why would you make any kind of dedication to me? I have nothing to offer you and the Lord has gone out against me. Why would I drag you into my problems? And the reactions of Orpah and Ruth, I think, are the answer to that question. In verse 14, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah is convinced by these arguments. You're right. You, you can't do anything for me. You can't provide for me. And, and nobody's mad at Orpah. You have to understand that. There, there, there actually is no bad guy in the book of Ruth that we get to like root against. 
you know. Uh, nobody's mad at Orpah. Everybody looks at Orpah and says, you've made the right decision. You have saved yourself a lifetime of suffering and, and, and a possibly death and, and, a, and a lack of safety and starvation. But Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. The answer to, to how do we see God in our day-to-day lives, in, 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 the, in the monotony of our day-to-day lives, as, as church, as fellow Christians, as, as people who meet in these groups weekly, is we cling to one another. As, as Ruth is clinging to Naomi. Now, now notice, again, Ruth's clinging to Naomi. It makes no sense. This is going to make Ruth's life a lot harder by taking on Naomi's burdens as well as her own. But this is what we are called to do with one another. This is how we make it through that, that grief period where we say, I can't see God. I don't know where God is. He is exceedingly bitter to me. I experience nothing but loss, nothing but hopelessness. If someone comes along and they say, I will cling to you. I will preach to you. I will serve you. I will help you bear your burdens. And the reason is because I can see that Hesed love. And right now you're just temporarily blinded, but I am with you. That makes no sense at all. It makes all the sense in the world for me to say your problems are too heavy, too big, and you're just dragging me down, so I'm going to go do my own thing somewhere else where I'm happier. That makes sense until you read this book right here. That makes sense until you understand that you are Naomi and Jesus is the one who has clung to you in your time of need where you could not offer anything and you only bring the man down, but he clings to you anyway. That he shows you that Hesed love anyway. That is the only time that any of this begins to make any sense. Our day-to-day lives and our, and our coming in here and singing worship songs, they get this, this label of boring, of mundane, of monotonous when we lose the fact that every single day when we wake up, Jesus says, I'm clinging to you. When we lose sight of the fact that every single day there's new mercies, new grace that are shown to you. And what happens is we become blinded by our grief. We become blinded by our circumstances, by how stressful our job is, by the loss of relationships, uh, by, by the pressures of life in general. And we don't see that anymore. So we look back at Yahweh and we say, you are doing nothing for me. Maybe, maybe your hand has gone out against me. Maybe I would be better off clinging to something else. Christianity becomes boring, and it stops making sense. Why would I come here and worship with you people? Why would I seek to bear your burdens? That doesn't make sense to me anymore. But those of us in here 
those of us in here that have had our burdens bared, that have been through the ringer, that have seen the depths of the valley and was shown grace there. It's our turn. It's our turn to come along those who are grieving and come along those who are hurting and say, we will worship God again. There is love out there that is steadfast. There is a gospel. There is Jesus. He still died for you. He still clings to you. So talking about grief, there's a few things that, that I think uh, the Bible makes very, very clear. And, and a message to those that are grieving, as, as the people in our text are. First, uh, grief is not wrong. Right? Grief is not wrong. The Bible never tells you not to grieve or to suppress your grief. Paul does not say rejoice with those who rejoice and with those who weep, tell them to suck it up. He says weep with those who weep. We have, this, we, we have, the, we have the Bible verse that we all memorize, right? It's the, short, it's the shortest one in all the Bible. Jesus wept. Right? It's just two words. We all memorized it. But what was interesting about that is Jesus wept at the funeral of a guy that he was about to walk in and raise from the dead. It seems like he would be the one that shows up with good news. Like, oh, he's not really dead. Don't worry about it. We're going to raise him from the dead. But instead, Jesus wept. Why would he do that? He does that as an example. This is our response to grieving. It's not wrong. Give your grief its weight. Weep over it. What I pray is you're surrounded by people who will weep with you and who will bear that burden with you and who every single day will preach said love to you. One thing is, is not all grief is your fault. You are not responsible for all the grief in your life. You may very well be responsible for a portion of it, but not all grief is your fault. There are sins that people have committed against you that cause you grief, immense grief in your life, and it's not your fault. But either way, Jesus is your answer to that grief. Whether, whether you reach reconciliation with the person who has caused this with you or not, whether you are able to, to be reconciled to the person who you have caused grief to or not, Jesus can bring healing, and Jesus brings healing. Uh, Hebrews uh, four fifteen through 16, which we read before the service, um, it says that Jesus is, is our high priest. And, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to grace as we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. 
Jesus understands what you're going through. Regardless of what that is, he, he has exper- experienced every temptation that we experience, right? He, he, he lived a truly uh, human life, and he sympathizes with you. He is your answer. He is the one who, when it makes no sense whatsoever, clings to you. In your grief, do you turn towards God or do you turn away from God? If you turn God, if you do turn towards God, do you turn to him as as someone to blame or as someone to comfort? These these are those those practical questions that you got to be honest with you and you have to be honest with God. And as I tell anybody that I talk to about these types of things, God's a big boy. He can handle your honesty. You're not going to hurt his feelings. But ultimately, what do you long for? Do you long for ultimate healing, ultimate reconciliation, ultimate justice? Do you long for heaven? That's where our hope is. Our hope is in the other side of glory, where all things are made right, where all things that are happened that have been unjust or, or, or created uh, or handled justly, where, where every sin has an answer. The story of Ruth is a story of God loving, pursuing, redeeming, and providing for his people. And he will accomplish all of these things. Because of the gospel, because of the work of Christ, we have hope in the midst of our own hopelessness. We can be filled in times of emptiness. We can cling to one another knowing, knowing that ultimately it is because God has chosen to cling cling to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we really I just I just pray that we're that we're broken over this. Um, Lord, I, I pray that, that that through Ruth, through your word, through the actions of 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 your people. Other people are just confused. They're just dismayed. They don't know what to do with, uh, with the dedication of your people to one another and to those in need. Lord, I pray that you challenge us to peel back uh, the things that we have labeled as, as mundane and monotonous and, and repetitive in our day-to-day lives, to peel those things back and see the richness of your glory at work. At work in, in our nine-to-five jobs, at, at work in our households, at work in our conversations, Lord, in, in all things that we do, Lord. Lord, I want to pray for those that are, that are grieving deeply in the room. Comfort them. Lord, let them know that grief is, grief is not wrong. Their fault or not, it's not wrong. In their grief, they have 
They have you, Lord, in their suffering. They have ultimate healing to look forward to. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in the name of your holy and precious Son. Amen.